Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Monday the 21st of December. Today, our correspondents around the world assess reaction to the Copenhagen Climate Summit. For Hugo Chavez, this was yet another example of the evils of capitalism. All in all, a pretty disappointed and angry reaction in Latin America. And how a steel town in the northeast is bracing itself for the closure of the Coros plant. What we do now is make a few microwave ovens somewhere, make a few cars up in Sunland, and that's about it. But first... But I, I gotta keep trying Gotta keep my head held Simon Cowell is beaten by people power as Rage Against the Machine win the battle for Christmas number one. Music fans are celebrating the success of a grassroots campaign that challenged X Factor creator Simon Cowell's grip on the pop charts. The last four Christmas number ones have been performed by TV talent show winners. But this year, after an internet campaign, Killing in the Name, the 1992 rock anthem by Rage Against the Machine, outsold The Climb, a saccharine ballad by X Factor winner Joe McKeldery. I went to London's King's Cross to break the news to the great record-buying public. I really hope it gets number number one. It is number one, I can reveal. It is oh, is it? Fabulous. Simon down a peg on Yeah, I'm so glad it's number one. It's nice to have something else. It's just a bit, it's a bit silly. A bit silly? I mean, you don't really care what's number one. It's a song about conformity. And not, like, everyone's saying, getting everyone, you know, by the same song. Sorry about not being not kind of being conforming. It seems a bit. So everyone's kind of conformed to buy a song that's supposedly about not conforming. People aren't buying it because they like the song. <laughs> People are buying it because they want to buy a song that's not the X Factor song. Yeah. So it's not even about it being a really good song getting to, getting to number one. What do I think about Rage? Is it Christmas number? It one? is Christmas number one. Oh, I think that's probably a positive thing. <laughs> why, why is it brilliant? Because um, it makes a change from X Factor. Yeah. Although it's the same record label, isn't it? Yeah, they're both owned by Sony, so yeah. I think Simon Cowell gets all the money anyway. Yeah. So, well, that says it all, really. I think it's a very good idea. I, uh, I really don't like Simon Cowell very much. Um, <laughs> it's not very Christmassy, though, is it? Um, I don't think a Christmas number one has to be particularly Christmassy. I think it uh, just has to be a good song, and uh, I think it makes a point that um, maybe people don't want the, the usual, uh, yeah. usual kind of thing for Christmas. The Rage Against the X Factor campaign was mounted on Facebook and Twitter by John Mortar and his wife, Tracy, from South Woodham Ferrers in Essex. I, I think it's uh, an amazing thing that's just happened here. I mean, I think it's pretty historic. We've actually stood up and said, you know, we, we, we're just a little bit bored with sort of the same type of Christmas number one now, and the, the, the race has, has lost a bit of its zing. And we thought we'd just put a bit back into it, really. That was, uh, that was what we were trying to do. And, um, yeah, I think we've done it, yeah. And you've also encouraged Rage for Number One supporters to donate to Shelter. How much did you end up raising for them? Currently, we're, um, last count was about £62,000, £63,000. And we're, still, we're not going to stop that. We're going to carry that on. Because, you know, now we've achieved this, I, I don't see a reason why, you know, we can't get 100000 200000 Let's Let's keep it going. So, yes, yes, the, the, the guys that have donated have been fantastic, and we're going to try and keep it going as best possible. And I, I understand that Simon Cowell actually phoned you up and, and sort of uh, wished you all the best. Yes, he did. He rang last night. It was very sweet. It was, it, I had a great little conversation with him. And, um, yeah, re- really nice to speak to him, actually. Really was nice to speak to him. And, and he wished us well. 
and I, I also wish Joe the best as well uh, on his half. So, you, you, yeah, you weren't, yeah, you weren't tempted. You weren't tempted to to um, say, you know, fuck you. I won't do what you told me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. For the reason being that um, that the whole campaign has not that that's not been the point. The point is that the Christmas number one has just been boring, and we just wanted to sort of give it a, give it a change. Um, I'm not I'm not anti X Factor. I'm not anti Simon Cowell. So no, that that that's certainly not what what I would have said now. <laughs> Critics of your campaign have said that, you know, Sony is behind Rage Against the Machine as well as all the Simon Cowell Act. So, you know, really, it's not really um, a very effective protest. Um, yeah, I can see their point. But uh, again, you know, I mean, the Sony thing, as far as I was concerned, wasn't a relevant point. I mean, I wouldn't have minded if Simon Cowell had written Killing in the Name, to be honest with you. <laughs> the fact was, as I said, it was an X Factor number one we've had for years now. And I just wanted to, to just, you know, just bring it back a little bit, really. So, yeah, I can see that why, you know, some people have mentioned the Sony thing. Yeah, Sony have made some money out of it. Rage Against the Machine themselves have offered to give their proceeds to Shelter and to Youth Music, which are both UK charities. So, um, you know, the UK has benefited from this. And so it means that Rage Against the Machine, Killing in the Name of it, is now up there alongside such giants as Shaking Stevens, St. Winifred's School Choir. I mean, there have been some pretty um, horrible Christmas number ones in the past. I mean, why does the Christmas number one really matter? I think it's a great, quirky British tradition, you know. Uh, it's a, since a kid, it was always, you know, who's a, you tune in to see who's the Christmas number one this year. You'd get some great tunes, you'd get some rubbish, but it was all fun. And I used to really like that. And, and since it sort of got a bit lost in you know in the last sort of couple of years or so it got it's a bit of a shame really so yeah you know there's been lots of quirky different types of christmas number ones and here's another one john mortar and you can have your say at guardian.co.uk slash music on guardian.co.uk sport today we have reactions to all the fallout from this weekend's football action including mark hughes getting sacked to manchester city and we look at how roberto mancini the man replacing him will do we also look at John Terry's alleged financial misdemeanours at Chelsea, as well as looking back at the first test between England and South Africa and throwing things forward to what you might expect over Christmas week. It ended in failure. That was what The Guardian said about the outcome of the global summit on climate change in Copenhagen. Or, as the right-wing US talk show host Rush Limbo put it, Everything Obama is touching is coming apart. Everything's unraveling. World stunned by Obama's Copenhagen speech from the UK Guardian. And they are a bunch of, uh, of commies. That was before he called on the US to bomb Iran. But interpretations of the Copenhagen summit vary. We asked Guardian correspondents around the world to give us a clearer idea of how Copenhagen is viewed. In Westminster, Allegra Stratton, Latin America correspondent Rory Carroll, our China environment writer Jonathan Watts, and to start us off, our reporter in New York, Ed Pilkington. In the United States, Barack Obama has returned to a snowbound White House to receive the criticism from both sides of the climate change debate. You get environmentalists like Friends of the Earth US have decried what he came back with, the the non-binding deal, saying all this is America's fault, that he should have put more money on the table for poor countries to to bring them on board, and he failed to do that. And on the other side of the debate, you get economic liberal groups, such as the Club for Growth, which believes in small government and low taxes, who have called uh, the deal a sham as well, and they say... They were very, very uh, pleased to hear Obama describe it as meaningful, 
because whenever a politician describes anything as meaningful, it means it's completely meaningless. So they say they're happy in a sort of ironic way. Slightly more towards the sort of middle of the debate, the Obama administration is claiming it as a sort of step forward, a great step forward, said Axelrod. And so I think what they're now going to argue is that they're taking the long-term view on this and that they're looking forward and that this is just a start. Uh, they're not kind of claiming that they had any sort of major breakthrough here, but they are pointing forwards and saying they can now move ahead. And the next big question will be what happens in Congress in terms of uh, an energy bill, particularly their desire to try and get cap and trade on the statute books. And it's kind of unpredictable to know how that will now go. I think uh, opponents of cap and trade will be emboldened by what happened in Copenhagen. They will say there's no global desire for, for anything to go forward and they'll now resist it even more strongly. But I think uh, the Obama administration will take what came out of Copenhagen as a first step, put it forward in front of Congress and say, right, now it's time for us within the US to put our own money where our mouth is. In China, the reaction to the Copenhagen Accord has been muted rather than triumphant. In the most senior comments so far, the country's foreign minister, Yang Jiechi, described the outcome as significant and positive. The media have echoed this, though at the same time they've made it clear that this is not an outright success, that there are serious problems with the accord as it stands, but nonetheless that it is a step forward. It has to be remembered that the media in China tend to be top-down. It's uh, difficult to go too far against the government position. There is, so far, no response to accusations in Europe that China is responsible for wrecking the conference and preventing a more successful conclusion. But there is an implied um, defense of China's position in what the foreign ministry have said and what has been reported in the newspapers, which is that China believes it has a different set of responsibilities to those in rich nations. For historical reasons, as a late developer, and because it has a bigger population, China feels its responsibility for the greenhouse gases in the air is, is less than that of older industrialized nations, and it stoutly defends the idea of more responsibility for rich nations, and this, I'm sure, will come across more strongly in the media in the days ahead as China tries to defend its position. But so far, a deal of some sort is done, and I think China now wants to move forward. In Latin America, the reaction has verged from disappointment to outrage and indignation. Uh, Mexico, uh, which of course is going to be due to take over the Copenhagen Accord and host the UN's next climate talks next year, has said that the proposals were far from what we expected and from what the world needs. Um, but it does hold out hope, it says, but it is the basis for a future agreement. So obviously the Mexicans are saying that they may yet be able to, uh, to salvage the accord when they host uh, the meeting next year. Uh, meantime, the other big hitter in, in Latin America, Brazil, said it was disappointed. Uh, it said there was a big job ahead on climate change talks and that that job was not done here in Copenhagen. However, like the Mexicans, they hold out hope for the future and they're saying that it was not a failure uh, as long as countries agree to meet again and deal with the issues that are still pending. So those are two relatively measured responses from the big hitters uh, of Latin America. In contrast, Venezuela and Bolivia and Cuba, the leftist uh, leaders of the so-called Pink Tide here, are outraged. They say that the Copenhagen was an attempt by rich countries to ambush 
poorer countries and that this was a US-led or as Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela says, the empire leading an attempt by the rich industrialized countries to stitch up a deal which would have made poor nations suffer. And for Hugo Chavez, this was yet another example of the evils of capitalism. And he says Copenhagen showed that capitalism is dead and socialism is the only way to save humanity and the planet. Uh, meantime, Fidel Castro in Cuba has chipped in as well along the same lines and saying that uh, comparing, in fact, the behavior of the Danish police towards protesters with the Nazi occupation of Denmark in World War II. Uh, meantime, Bolivia, uh, which is a, a strong ally of Hugo Chavez, has also led a, a group of uh, poor countries uh, in a revolt against uh, the proposal. They said that this was an attempt, an anti-democratic uh, attempt uh, to impose the will of rich countries. And again, Argentina, not quite as strong as, as, the, as the Andean nations to the north, but has also uh, has denounced the accord uh, as, an, as an attempted stitch-up by the developing countries. So all in all, a pretty disappointed and angry reaction in Latin America. In the UK, the politicians have veered between exhausted disappointment from ministerial level and uh, bullish optimism from the Prime Minister. Ed Miliband, the Climate Change Secretary, is, has said on the record that though it's an important start, the agreement that both developing and developed nations recognise the need to limit temperature increase to two degrees, he thinks, is significant. But he's also said that he had really wanted a clearer track to a legally binding treaty, which they didn't get, and legally um, recognised targets. Again, they didn't get that. So he's very disappointed. But Brown, again, there's a sort of chink of disappointment in his language, but he's much more. I mean, this is, I suppose, in this, we have their personalities coming out. Brown thinks that if the world can work together over the next few months to nail down some of the outstanding things, then actually this Copenhagen summit will be seen to be you know, the beginning of a sort of significant um, zeitgeist shift around the world. So Brown is optimistic, uh, Miliband disappointed, but I suppose has to has to cling on for hope. Uh, the Tories support them. They obviously want work to carry on, but broadly they, they are behind them. The Lib Dems are using more despairing language and have said they're desperately disappointed. And then the Green Party, Caroline Lucas, has, has called Copenhagen a disaster, a completely empty accord with very little in it. Allegra Stratton, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Taxpayers' Alliance campaigns against the misuse of public funds. But the Guardians learned that it's set up a charity under a different name which gets subsidies from the taxman worth up to 40% on individual donations. Robert Booth explains what we found out. Uh, what we've discovered is that the Taxpayers' Alliance, which is a campaign group that lobbies for uh, lower taxes and more efficient government spending, has a charitable arm, if you like, or at least that's how it's been described to us. Um, and this is a, a, a charity under charity law, which is sits alongside the uh, Taxpayers' Alliance. And through this charity, the Taxpayers' Alliance appears to be um, receiving funds. Now, that seems fairly normal and perhaps fairly boring to some people, but the point is that by using a charity, it can actually gain subsidies from the taxpayer to help fund its work. And what that revelation has, has sparked, really, is some concern amongst senior politicians. On top of that, of course, given that the main thrust of the Taxpayers' Alliance is about low taxes and efficient um, spending of public money, they point out that there's an irony there 
or maybe even an element of hypocrisy that the Taxpayers Alliance, if it is using this charity to get a subsidy or get a tax break, is going rather against its own principles. You say senior politicians have pointed this out. I mean, senior Labour politicians, because the Taxpayers Alliance does have links to the Tories, doesn't it? Well, that's right. The Taxpayers Alliance is very clear that it it is not a party political organisation. However, it does have links to some senior frontbenchers who have come to speak at its events. It shares a number of donors with the Conservative Party and its policies, which it espouses, have been picked up quite quickly uh, by George Osborne, the Shadow Chancellor. So it's inevitable that the attacks on the Taxpayers Alliance for this kind of arrangement have come from, for the most part, John Prescott, who is running the uh, uh, campaign for the fourth Labour term and has this job of tackling fringe Conservative, maybe small c, groups. And has the Taxpayers Alliance broken any rules in setting up this arrangement? The Taxpayers Alliance says that the arrangement is absolutely consistent with charity law and that they're quite happy with it but it's not completely clear what the arrangement actually is because the accounts that this charity has filed, it's called the Politics and Economics Research Trust for those that are interested, lack detail and the Charity Commission which regulates charities in England and Wales have um, have actually opened a number of assessment cases to look into what this arrangement actually is and they are um, yet to conclude that. Robert Booth. In just over a month's time, Coros is closing its steelworks in Redcar. Martin Wainwright reports on how people are preparing for what will be a devastating blow to the local economy. I'm in Redcar on Teesside uh, near Middlesbrough in northeast England, where 1,700 steel jobs are due to go uh, from January. And not just those jobs, but people reckon anything between 4,000 and 12,000 of jobs linked to the steelworks here. Um, it's cast a, a, a terrible cloud uh, over the area, especially coming just before Christmas. Um, and I've come to talk to workers affected uh, both in the steelworks and in, and in allied contracting trades uh, about um, the decision uh, for the huge plant here, which for years and years has been the one of the staple industries of, uh, of Teesside. The fact that uh, this tradition looks like almost coming to an end. I'm just at the Mini Chef, which is a very welcoming cafe on the roundabout just outside Chorus at Redcar. And there's a couple of gents here. You were, you were saying that there's been a lot going off locally. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it must be the big issue on T's side. This. Well, obviously, 1,700 jobs are going to disappear in about a month's time. And, uh, you know, where they're going to find these people going to find jobs? Uh, the amount of investment in this area is virtually zip at the moment, non-existent. The government, by and large, seem to be ignoring us. Uh, they're supposed to be generating £60 million somewhere to help regenerate the area, but uh, that really is not going to be you know, anywhere near enough to um, keep people in employment in this part of the world. Is All the we do now is make a few microwave ovens somewhere, make a few cars up in Sunderland, and that's about it. It's uh, hailing on T's side now to add to the generally depressing atmosphere um, that surrounds the place, inevitably with all these uh, pending job losses. But I've come to one slightly different place, and that's the Wilton Centre, which is state-of-the-art modern uh, laboratories. And I've come to see Nigel Perry, who's chief executive of the Centre for Process Innovation. Uh, This is a body which uh, encourages uh, new industries, the sort of things that this area desperately needs. And um, I've come to find out from him if there is any reason for optimism. 
I think that Teesside has a great future in continuing in chemical manufacture. I think the ability to complement biological sources of materials, biological uh, energy, I think is, is a critical um, area to look at and a critical area that I think will be developed. So I would not be unduly pessimistic. I can appreciate that it would be very easy to be so, particularly at the moment. But I think you know, given time, 10, 15, 20 years, there will still be a significant industry here and it will still demand people in, in significant numbers. I, I think mankind's demand for materials, chemicals, materials, will not change significantly in the next 20 years. It's difficult to conceive of the social change that would be needed to bring that about. So I fully envisage and, and fully expect to see that scale of industry on Teesside in 20 years' time. It may not be concentrated on the Wilton site, it may be spread around a bit more, I don't know. But uh, there's no reason in my mind to see anything other than what's out there. It might be owned by different people, it might be making different processes, using different processes. But I think we as a, as a country and as a society will not be able to do without the chemical industry in 20 years' time, not by any stretch of the imagination. Martin Wainwright reporting. Ian Chambers was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.